Kiwi, my loves. My name's Glyn Fussell. Some of you may know me as one of the founders of Sink the Pink and Mighty Hoopla, but you probably know me as just one big professional show-off. Right, let's look up the definition of guilty pleasures. Something such as a film, television programme or piece of music that one enjoys despite feeling that it is not generally held in high regard. I often think about guilty pleasures mainly as someone that's pursued them my entire life. In fact, I think if you speak to my friends, a lot of them will say that I am, in fact, a walking, talking guilty pleasure. And what do I think of the term guilty pleasures? I guess I've never really analysed it. How do people define guilty pleasures? Who is to say what is guilty and what is not? Isn't pleasure surely just one thing? I think it comes with a heavy burden of shame. As a young queer kid growing up in Bristol, surrounded by very working-class surroundings, I was sort of debilitated by fear that people might actually see me for who I am. Fear of someone might chastise me for the fact that I bought Step's Greatest Hits album. There seems to be this real hierarchy around pleasure. I think when you look at things like reality TV and you look at art and one's frowned upon and and considered bad and the other is sort of seen as elitist and great. Where do we decide that one is guilty and one is not? And how have we come to that opinion? I want to take a look at the way guilt ruins our experience of pleasure. My hope is that by the end of this, you'll actually feel a little less guilty about the things that you enjoy. Okay, let's start in an obvious place. What is pleasure and why do we need it as humans? Well, two lovely words we inherited from the ancient Greeks break happiness down into two ideas. The first is hedonia. It's what feels good, enjoyment, and the absence of distress. And it's where we get the idea of hedonism from. And believe me, I know all about that. The second is eudaimonia, which is really about our long-term happiness and contentment, our search for meaning and fulfilling our full potential. In the battle of these two ideas, hedonic or hedonistic activities, which are closest to most people's definition of pleasure, are generally thought of as the least important of the two. For Adrian Mary Brown, the social justice activist and writer of Emergent Strategies, We Will Not Cancel Us, and Pleasure Activism, her definition and understanding of the role of pleasure in our lives feels a lot more necessary than what a lot of people would have you think. So the way that I define pleasure is joy, contentment, and satisfaction. I say this because a lot of times when I mention the words to people, they're like sex dungeon. And I'm like, it could be if that's your thing. But for most of us, we need to touch into a much more basic and accessible daily experience of pleasure. I think we experience pleasure as humans partially to let us know that we're heading in the right direction. So a lot of times when I feel like contentment or I feel joy, um, it's after I've done something that's healthy or healing for myself. It's after I've done something that allows me to be connected. And 
it allows me to know that there's completion also. It's like, oh, I set out to water all these plants and now I feel good. They're watered. <laughs> you know, there's, there's those little loops in the body. I also think that pleasure is a huge part of what we get from and how we know that we're in right relationship or right community with others. Humans are not structured to be highly isolated creatures. We are born out of the womb into someone else's hands. We have no capacity to care for ourselves whatsoever. And then our first impulses are for those basic human needs and for the pleasure of connection. So there's a deep wiring, I think, in there for pleasure. And then I also think that we're one of the rare creatures that we know of that can actually reason, that can reckon with suffering. So I'm like, I know I'm going to suffer, but I better have that equal experience of joy on the other side of it. That's how you balance the human experience. So pleasure feels almost innate in some ways. I guess it's a key to being human. But within our understanding of pleasure, there are certain things that are thought of as more important or more valuable than others. With people referring to some aspects of culture as trash. This is where we begin to touch on what I think most people think of when you talk about the term guilty pleasures. It could be a Bonnie Tyler power ballad, or it could be your favorite Real Housewives of New York TV show. Believe me, I've watched all of those. Should we really feel guilty about enjoying these things? And do these comparisons really mean anything at all? You know, I think guilty pleasures is this concept that people have come up with to make us limit our experiences of feeling good. I always ask myself, I'm like, who should I feel guilty to? Who should I feel guilty? Like who, who benefits from me feeling guilty about this thing? But a lot of the things that we've been told are guilty pleasures. I'm like, no, that's just human nature. <laughs> There's nothing to feel guilty about for desiring each other. There's nothing to feel guilty about for pleasing yourself. There's nothing to feel guilty about for making mistakes, you know, for being a mess, for being too high. You know, there's just some things like that. They're like, really, there's no one who's going to benefit from that guilt. And I think a lot of the ways that people have tried to create a hierarchy of pleasures of like, there's these low or lowbrow pleasures and, and high, high art, you know, I think a lot of that is about trying to enforce a class dynamic on the world. That it's like, oh, you know, if we are rich, if we're upper class, if we're wealthy, we engage in these highbrow things, which often, if you really look at them, are about the same things, right? A lot of art is also about fucked up relationships and like weird dynamics and messed up families. And like, it's all the same stuff, right? Like Shakespeare is talking about the same stuff that Married at First Sight is talking about. I totally agree in that putting the shame around pleasure can often be a class issue. And it's about power. It's about having power over others and making people feel lesser than for just living their life and being themselves unapologetically. These different beliefs about what pleasure is and what it should look like can be a tool to organize society along narrow lines and make marginalized groups feel less worthy of pleasure than others. The idea of pleasure activism is in part about addressing this. I feel like many of us, I was misinformed about what pleasure was and what right relationship to it was. I grew up in relationship to the Christian church. I grew up black. I grew up fat. I grew up with all these ideas of 
only wealthy people deserve to experience pleasure. Only skinny people deserve to experience pleasure. Only people who fit a certain aesthetic or a certain belief system. And then on the other side, there was this concept of pleasure is bad. Pleasure is sinful. Feeling what your body feels, responding to what your body feels is wrong and it'll lead you to destruction. (laughs) And all of it felt really out of alignment with what I was experiencing in my body, which was, you know, awakening and a feeling of aliveness and a feeling of gratitude. And what I was experiencing when I looked at myself, which was like kind of cute, you know, I think of pleasure activism as the ways that we reclaim our inherent right to feel good and to feel content and to feel satisfied from the myths and the delusions of supremacy and oppression. For many of us, someone has put out a story that made us feel like we particularly did not deserve those basic pleasures, those basic joys. And so pleasure activism, one huge part of it is reclaiming those things. However, it's not just what other people think about our pleasures that makes us feel guilty. It can come from things we tell ourselves as well. With many of us believing the things we enjoy get in the way of us working towards our hopes and ambitions. For Dr. Katerina Bernecker, a social and motivational psychologist at the University of Zurich, this problem is innately human. There is kind of parts of the brain that are specifically human, I would say. So we do have a very large brain compared to the size of our body. What's just above our eyes is the so-called prefrontal cortex. And this one helps us to actually experience pleasure consciously. So we are able to say and reflect on how much fun something is or how good things taste. And I think this is something that is maybe only up to us humans to experience it consciously. That there's also conflicts going on. So this kind of prefrontal cortex that I was talking about is also the brain area that helps us to have foresight to imagine ourselves in the future and come up with something like a long-term goal. And I think there we are kind of special in the sense that we can experience this kind of conflict between something that might be pleasurable in the moment, but that is maybe not in line with something that we imagine for ourselves in the future. And in that regard, I would say we are also some kind of special animal there that has to kind of balance these two things. So the the here and now and our future. And I would say that's specifically um, a human problem, let's say. Don't you find that this conflict feels like it's on overdrive today more than ever before? when everyone is so connected and we constantly feel like there is something else we should be doing with our lives. I mean, whatever happened to just enjoying the moment, hey? Dr. Bernecker, with her colleague, Dr. Daniela Becker, conducted a study to see how these thoughts about the future affected our pleasure as well as our overall well-being. We were kind of trained as um, social psychologists to believe that short-term pleasures are not good for us. Pleasures and also thoughts about hedonic pleasures distracting us from our long-term goals. So the first thing that we wanted to show with our study was that in the end, pursuing pleasures, short-term pleasures, and pursuing them successfully is actually good for our well-being. So we kind of thought about 
different people that are either good in pursuing their short-term pleasures, so people that really don't feel any guilt, so they can easily lay on the sofa for two hours. But there might be other people that do have some thoughts about things that they should rather be doing. And so this was really just our intuition that there might be some individual differences involved. So we started out basically to, first of all, see whether we find these differences by really asking people about how well they are doing in pursuing short-term pleasures. And then also we measured well-being on the other side and connected these two dots, basically. The really main takeaway from the study was that in the end, the ability or capacity to pursue short-term pleasures was actually good for people. So it was positive predictor of things like well-being or positive emotions people felt during their day or life satisfaction and even depression or anxiety scores were lower among those people who told us that they were better in pursuing their short-term pleasures. So I think this was the first takeaway from the study. And the second was really the idea that our long-term goals and duties can basically get into the way of pursuing short-term pleasures. So we basically also discovered what we would say is a major mechanism in getting at these intrusive thoughts. We kind of just flip the coin in a sense. So long-term goals are sometimes not very helpful for us, especially in these moments where it's mainly about how we are doing in the present moment. So if it's good for our long-term mental health, maybe we should all just lighten up and enjoy whatever we want, right? Well, like all good things, this comes with a bit of a disclaimer. For Adrian Mary Brown, learning what is enough is another key part of pleasure activism. You know, it's it's still a relatively new idea. So I think there's a lot of people who, again, when they hear it, they think of hedonism instead of pleasure. And I think there's an indication to me of how much repression there is in the world. If you say to someone pleasure activism and they're just like, so that just means we don't even care about what's wrong or we don't pay attention to what's going, you know, I'm like, no, no, no. A lot of pleasure activism is helping people to understand that they can have access to pleasure, that they can set boundaries and that they can create consent. In the book, I have a small piece on excess because I do think that, especially for those of us who've been really heavily shaped by capitalism, the place that we go to uh, when we think about having pleasure is excessive drugs, excessive sex, excessive food, excessive everything. And I actually think the opposite is necessary for getting in the practice of pleasure activism because rather than talking about how do I have too much of everything, it's about getting really close to the feeling of having enough. You know, I think about this with pizza, for instance. I'm always, always in a dance of trying to figure out like what is enough pizza and what is too much pizza. And, you know, like to me, a life of zero pizza would not be a satisfying life. But a life of the way that I have eaten pizza throughout my history, like I want pizza now, I'll have a whole pepperoni pizza. And then I feel like crap for like two days straight, you know? 
because pizza at that scale is unnatural, right? (laughs) So now I have figured out that I'm like one slice of a deep dish pepperoni pizza square is perfect. It's enough. It satisfies my body. It satisfies my taste buds and I'm good, but it has to be really good pizza. And so everyone has to figure out what is there enough relative to pizza, relative to orgasms, relative to how many people you can handle having in your life. So at this point, it really feels like what we think about our guilty pleasures says a lot about how we feel about ourselves. And I suppose no part of our lives is this more true than how we feel about our bodies. For a lot of society, our bodies are the ultimate source of shame and embarrassment. However, RuPaul cannot have it wrong. You see, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. According to the biblical origin story of mankind, after Adam and Eve had taken a bite of a forbidden apple, one of their punishments was to see themselves as naked. So is a happy life a naked one? Is nakedness the ultimate guilty pleasure? It is interesting, right? So many of the origin stories are like, we were totally happy with our bodies, walk around naked in a garden. <laughs> and there's actually many stories like that. People, before we had mirrors, before we had photography, before we had even cultural exchange, that there was so much more kind of basic comfort in the body and that we saw that the body was for living. The body is for like surviving and staying alive and mating and eating. And now, you know, I think that we've gotten so far away from feeling at home in our bodies. And I think there's so much unpacking to do around how bodies are seen and valued and how that relates to the pleasure we think is possible in those bodies. And almost all the things that we're socialized to think about our bodies is untrue. The body that gets presented to us as this is the normal body is like a supermodel body. And by default, it's a supermodel body, which means it's actually very rare. (laughs) Like almost no one has that body. Those are the bodies that we're supposed to all be comparing ourselves to as like, these are bodies that deserve pleasure. These are beautiful bodies. I think what else is interesting to me is that what is considered desirable changes over time. So there's been periods of time when um, a thicker body, a softer body was considered more desirable or was seen as more powerful. Often if you're in a society where poverty is really central, then a bigger body is seen as a sign of wealth and thus must more desirable. These things are not set in stone. They're changing all the time. One of the practices, I, I talk about this in the book, but I did practices of looking at myself in the mirror, like really looking at myself in the mirror and being in a self-acceptance practice of each part of my body. Like looking at, you know, I started with my pinky. And I was like, you're a beautiful pinky. Like I really went part by part and just worked on generating adoration for what I saw in the mirror. I noticed the curvaceous shape. I noticed the color of my skin. I love my body. I really love it, right? And I treat it that way. 30 years ago, three amazing women decided to renegotiate this relationship with their bodies in a more overt way, starting a groundbreaking art movement off the back of it. 
I'm Wilma Johnson and I'm a neonaturist performance artist, a painter. My name's Christine Binney. I'm a potter and performance artist. I am Jennifer Binney. I am an artist. I work mainly in paint, but also other mediums. In about 1980, Wilma was an art student at St. Martin's and Christine was her life model when they started experimenting with body paint. She started off by wanting to paint pictures of me, but it was probably only a day or two till we got to the point where she was painting my body. Meanwhile, Christine's sister, Jennifer, was experimenting with body paint too with her then-boyfriend, Grace and Perry. Uh, we had this really awful, grotty flat, me and Grayson and our friend Paula. And we decided to make it a kinky sex-themed Halloween party. And I decided to wear tiger-striped body paint. It was orange and black stripes all over my body. And that was my very first body paint. This idea blossomed into the neonaturists when they all met up and started doing performance together. I guess our performances, they were funny, really. <laughs> and they also had a point behind them. The idea of accepting your body as it is and really going against the whole kind of perfection and what was perfect size zero women. So I've got a photo, some photos here. These are, I love these. These are the first things I saw after 30 years of not being with the neonatrius. So here we've got this very tribal black paint on. And for me, that's like the ultimate neonatrist beach photo. It's got everything. It's like um, taking the piss of the way of your beach photos when with your family. It's also taking the piss of the kind of idea of bikini models and perfect figures on the beach because we're all kind of looking very, very happy but sm smeared in this swirling black body paint. Brings back a lot of happy memories. <laughs> I mean, at the time, there were performance artists around who were really into kind of pain. And I think our core philosophy, I think, was mainly about enjoying ourselves and laughing. They did this under the shadow of Thatcher's Britain and at the same time in the heavily made-up pristine new romantic club scene. This is just after Mrs Thatcher had first been elected and the whole emphasis of everything seemed to be ambition. When you went out to a nightclub, it wasn't like, oh, let's go out and have a laugh. It was kind of sort of about networking and meeting people. There was a club called The Blitz that was very famous in those days where all these people like Boy George and Steve Strange and probably loads of other famous people used to go. It was very much careful makeup with white faces and it's really beautiful it's all really beautiful and very precise and very neat Christine and Wilma and I are from a slightly different mould and we're a bit more I suppose rough and ready and couldn't really be bothered to spend so long <laughs> Despite their rebellious spirit, they were nonetheless surprised at people's different reactions to their naked bodies and how they didn't fit the mould set for them by different parts of society. I think it's really interesting the way people 
almost see the clothed body as natural and nudity as a sort of um, outrageous thing to do, to take your clothes off. We were just really shocked by how shocked people were by our bodies. And especially now I look back and I think, what were they even talking about? I mean, we'd get reviews from people going, oh, oh, grotesque, grotesque. Oh, my God, these women should be hidden away. They shouldn't be showing their bodies. There was one where Christine and Wilma performed at the Royal Opera House. There's a review and it said, three voluptuous, horrific women. I mean, it sounds like we are absolute monsters by this description because we were next to these ballet, tiny ballet dancers and we were all like just normal-sized women. We actually went to the uh, Page 3 studio once. She was, I think, a total misunderstanding on their behalf of what we were. And we were going, no, this is hilarious. We've got to see, we've got to see the, you know, the citadel of the patriarchy. So we went along and we kind of knew, as soon as we walked in, the guy just looked at us and he was going, uh, uh, can you, can you, can you uh, take your glasses off and put some knickers on? <laughs> and then we're going, oh, well, at least, can you hold a teddy bear? We're like, nah, no, so far, no further. We don't mind walking around the streets naked, but I am not holding a teddy bear. I think the neonaturists and Sink the Pink, there's so much similarity there. I remember at the beginning of Sink the Pink when we started and we were aliens. People looked at us as if we were aliens, like we landed on another planet and all we were wanting to do was just not do as we were told. We wanted to just listen to our instinct and run into the fear of everything we'd been told we couldn't do before. I think the thing that can bring people together is is an idea that is lived, whether that's being naked or for us, it was about taking the piss out of ourselves and being raucous to the core. And I think that when you have a shared idea, however guilty that is, There's power. There's real power behind it. And it can lift an entire community of people up. An awful lot of people have been neonaturists over the years. So it's not only us. I made a pot that said, everyone who's ever been a neonaturist, this is one of my big ones. I think it had about 75 names on it or something. There is a huge power in being naked, definitely. We used to say that putting body paint on was like wearing a suit of armour. And often people really keep back from you, but partly because it smudges easily and they don't want to get it on their nice clothes. But also because you're naked, you're quite powerful. I think, I think you are, yeah. I think one of the great things about being 60 is you really do stop worrying about what other people think. I mean, (laughs) you do get to a point where you see that most of that judgment is totally futile and they're just wasting their time if they're worrying about what you're doing. And you're never actually going to achieve what you want to achieve in life if you sit around worrying about it. I think one thing I've learned after exploring guilty pleasures here is that pleasure feels quite fluid. It feels like something you have to constantly work on and we're not going to feel it all the time. 
There's going to be times it catches us off guard, but the one thing that should never, ever stop is our pursuit of pleasure and our pursuit of joy. We're all entitled to feel joy. And we're all conditioned to feel shame. But the way I see it is that shame lives in the past and pleasure takes us forward and into a far more colorful, beautiful existence. So I say to everybody, don't feel guilty about any of your pleasures. Dive headfirst into them. And it might be a little bit fucking fabulous. This podcast is part of Good Nature, Selfridge's ongoing exploration into the healing powers of nature and escapism. Tune in each week for more sonic journeys designed to help you escape, be inspired, and discover the joys of the natural world. And keep an eye on selfridges.com to see the Good Nature concept grow through thought-provoking events and mood-boosting experiences. It was a Radio Wolfgang production and featured Adrian Marie Brown, Dr. Katharina Bernica, and the neo-naturists Christine Binney, Jennifer Binney, and Wilma Johnson. The producers were Ivor Manley and Holly Aquilina, and the executive producer was Ellie Martino.